fellow writers, you have found Catherine's Corner of the Scriptarian Society, where we discuss specific books from the writer's perspective. Here with me, Carissa, aka Lewis, aka Catherine, we discuss the writer's side of reading to analyze some of the specifics that makes a book work or not work on a literary level. Many spoilers for this one are on their way, so decide accordingly if you want to listen on. If you don't mind the spoilers, or you've read the book in the title already, you have nothing to fear. And either way, welcome to both readers and writers. Today's episode is going to be all about Dividing Eden by Joelle Charbonneau. This is the only book, yes, the only book that I have read because of Book Talk. I only saw it once. It's not like a popular book, but it was an intriguing enough concept that it hooked me right away on first view. If you don't know what BookTok is, it's the bookish side of TikTok. If you do know what that is and find it suspect that I've only given into one book, really, I basically have. I've read only two other books because of BookTok, but they were books I'd already heard of and was simply swayed to read. Um, and they were books I did not like. But Dividing Eden is a book I hadn't heard of at all before BookTok, and I loved it. I will acknowledge that Goodreads seems to be divided <laughs> on whether or not it was good, but I enjoyed it a lot. It's a fun premise. There's a kingdom called Eden at war with another kingdom called Adderton, I think. I'm now questioning if that is the name. Let's assume it is. Adderton. We don't know a lot about Adderton, except that these two nations are at war. But Eden is ruled by seven virtues, like temperance and endurance, that their people and leaders are meant to embody in order to get them through extremely cold winters and a species of beast that attacks from the mountains. These beasts are actually not super important, except that the people fear them, and that's an important motivator. The capital city, called the Garden City, is where this story takes place. This city is walled and white with windmills on the battlements to power it, which I thought was a super cool idea, especially considering how important wind becomes toward the end. And the king rules beside a council of advisors and a seer, who supposedly controls the wind and learns the future through the stars. Our two main characters are Charis and Andreas, twins and princess and prince. Andreas has this curse, so to speak, which is basically a heart problem that makes him look weak and threatens his life. To protect him from a prophecy given by the seers that would use this condition as a reason to kill him, Karis has spent her entire life causing obnoxious distractions when his attacks come on so no one will notice, and because of this, she's lost all respect of her family and the people. She's also addicted to this substance called the Tears of Midnight that take away her pain when she gets lashed for her behavior. A substance her own mother gave her, by the way, but okay. We start out with Karis and Andreas's father, the king, and their brother, the next in line, getting killed in an ambush from Adderton. Their mother totally freaks out and goes mad, leaving the two of them the only heirs. But because they're twins and no one knows which one was born first except for the dead midwife and their mad mother, they now have to compete in trials based on those seven virtues to figure out which one is best suited to rule. There's betrayal and political intrigue and fun trials, and I thought it was executed really well. I think the clearest, biggest strength of this book was its characters and character development, so that's going to be the bulk of what I'm going to talk about. So let's first talk about a couple things non-character related. First, I think the idea of a culture set up around seven virtues is an intriguing concept. It worked sort of like a pantheon of gods, but more ambiguous. Less like a religion and more of a cultural ideal. A culture honoring certain virtues, which happens anyway, but it's open here, would seem to be more stable, at least potentially. 
it would go wrong in slightly different ways than usual, at least, which can mix up the typical political themes that come along with a lot of fantasy books. So if you're struggling to come up with a form for the government in your fantasy or dystopia, certain virtues taken either to extremes or abuse could be an interesting thought. You can handpick the virtues, even make them up. One of the virtues here is endurance, which isn't typical. Cater them to the world you've built and what might serve people or be difficult for people in that particular environment, and I think that could go some interesting directions. I am also going to nitpick and point out that this book did that thing I think is incorrect in that its flashbacks weren't written in past pluperfect tense. Very annoying. It can make things really unclear for readers, and I still hold it's an actual incorrectness rather than a style or choice thing. So just a reminder to go past pluperfect, or past perfect, it's the same, with your flashbacks, even if they only last for a sentence or part of a sentence. Thirdly, I really enjoyed the trials in this book. Trials and tests and riddles are on trend right now. They've been on trend for a long time, and sometimes I feel like they are used as bait to lure readers in within that back cover summary, but then they're never made to be the real point of the story itself. And that can be really frustrating, but that's not what happened here. The trials had actual consequences and actually pertained to their stated purpose. They were tense and varied. One was an archery contest and a race. One was a ball, like an event, a ball. One was an innocent boy's fate. One was an oratory exercise. They weren't abstractly or unnecessarily cruel. They were all different from one another and yet relevant to their purpose, finding a new ruler to lead the nation. I guess just don't, as a writer, shoehorn a trial or something into your book to trap readers. Either design the book around the trials, as Charbonneau does here, or leave them out. It did take us a while to get to the trials, but all of that buildup plays into them and their necessity, and most importantly, the relationship between the twins, which was the whole point. And with that, we are on to character. I loved the characters in this book. And when I say loved, I mean I love Karis with so much of my heart, but it is overshadowed by the depths of hatred I hold for Andreas. It has been a while since I have hated a character like this so much. For the first half of the book or so, I thought it was just me. Like, he just has some character traits that bug me on a general, real-life level. So when I started reading, I just resigned myself to the fact that I wouldn't like him. But as the book goes on, it becomes clear we're not supposed to like him. And oh boy, does Charbonneau succeed on that point. And she makes it sneak up on you. Every despicable little thought that came out of his hateful little head was infuriating. But it was so intriguing at the same time. Because it was such a subtle, gradual shift to the person he becomes at the end. Andreas is the person who goes straight up evil because he wants so badly to be liked and in control. He allows evil just because it will get him applause, and he pretends that ultimately it's okay that he's actually in the right because of the approval of specific people. He takes this relatively innocent trait of wanting to be loved and then lets it corrupt him. This book almost acts as his villain origin story, and contrast that with Karis, who is not perfect. She has an addiction, she's sort of a pushover and single-minded, she's got a lot of pride, but who is so desperately trying to do what she thinks is right rather than whatever will get her what she wants. 
that she's a perfect hero to contrast her brother. She is his opposite, his better in basically every way, even if neither of them want to admit it. She has spent her whole life cultivating an exterior she hates, living with the fact that she'll never have what she wants, growing more and more addicted to a painkiller because she has to take lashings and punishments for her brother's sake, for a brother that so easily betrays her. I think it was only about chapter four when I was already thinking to myself, please don't forgive him for this. This is unforgivable. He is an ungrateful little brat. To understand what kind of a person he is, know that his mother, his own mother, asked him to sleep with his brother's fiance so that brother would no longer want to marry that girl anymore. And his reason for not doing it is that he's already done it. Before any of the tension between him and his sister even begins, he chooses to spend the night sleeping with that now-dead brother's fiancé for his own fun, not his mother's ask, rather than tending to his sister, who just took a lashing to save his life. He actively thinks to himself, hey, I bet Karis wants me with her right now, I should go check on her. And then just decides that sleeping with the family seer is the better option for him personally. And that's always how he weighs things, by whether or not he will benefit. From the very beginning, Andreas is selfish and self-absorbed, and it shows up in all these little ways in his various behavior before he's even the bad guy for the reader. He sleeps around, and the way he thinks about and talks about the girls to other people is technically polite, but just off. He gives this little kid girl advice once, and it's so questionable. It reminds me of that part in Into the Woods when Prince Charming says he was taught to be charming, not sincere, as a defense for his behavior. That's who Andreas is. He's that guy. Andreas even comments that one maid in the palace is immune to him, and that is baffling to him, which it should not be. Then, other things. He expects Karis to take hits for him, never saying thank you or showing gratitude, but just assuming he deserves to be saved. He spends about four seconds mourning his brother before jumping his fiance. He barely thinks on his father once he's dead. There's this boy, Max, who he rescued off the streets because he has a similar heart condition, and Andreas treats him like his little errand boy with no thought for the fact that he's sick and not supposed to be out in the cold or that he might get caught by someone more powerful than him. Then, Andreas thinks it's suspicious when his sister hesitates when asked if she wants the crown, as though he's the one obviously entitled to it. There are all these little things that technically aren't red flags yet because they haven't matured into full-fledged flaws, or if they have, it's easy to dismiss them if you're trying to like him. They're the kinds of things you can wave off. But then, as the story goes on, they get worse and worse. He's basically obsessed with Imogen, his seer, and his brother's fiancé. He's always talking about how she's his now and how he has to win the trial so that he and Imogen can be together and be safe. No thought for his sister, no thought for what she's going through in the trials or the fact that she's decided to cheat and let him win, no thought for her motives and why he should trust her. Nope, it's all about him and precious Imogen, who he's so in love with. And the best part, the best part is that Imogen is totally playing him. She is manipulating the crap out of this stupid annoying prince, and I hate her too because she's against Karis, but it is so sweet to know that he is being played the whole time. When it was confirmed, when we finally realized that Imogen is, in fact, not a good guy, I almost screamed. She's basically just sleeping with him to manipulate him, and it is working concerningly well, despite the fact that she's turning him against his own sister within a couple days. He is so easily tricked into believing Karis is betraying him on the flimsiest evidence of all time just because Imogen told him so. 
he is eerily easily convinced into ordering an innocent boy of 12 to get executed to showcase his ability to lead. Then, with no evidence, he steals the drug his sister needs to basically survive and barely even cares that she's going to suffer from withdrawals. And why? All to win the trials and be with his precious Imogen. The girl who anyone thinking with their brain could see is straight up going to kill him once it becomes convenient. She was planning to marry his brother, and yet has him convinced like four hours after that brother dies that actually she wanted him all along. I'm sure none of this has anything to do with covering your bases and wanting to be queen. She's good. She even mentions this to him as a motive other people will attribute to her, so he'll discard it as a silly idea. And she's all fainty and fragile when they're alone, and he never notices how commanding and strong she is in public. He ignores so much, believing that she's weak and needs his protection, and he believes her over the people who truly care about him because he only cares that he's getting what he wants. Gosh, it infuriates me how stupid and selfish and awful he is, and that for a good part of the story, it really looked like he was getting ahead. I wanted to scream. Sometimes, I'm gonna confess something, sometimes reading books brings out a dark side in me that I'm not sure I like so much. You know, the Catherine side that wants revenge and suffering and misery brought down on despicable characters. And this was one of those books because all I wanted this whole book was for him to suffer. I wanted Imogen to betray him and gloat and have his heart shatter into tiny pieces. It was not a pretty side of me. But the point, the real point, is that Charbonneau did an excellent job achieving this kind of reaction. I I think it was the writing that did it. I hope that's not something inside of me that's just super accessible. I, I think it was that she is a good writer. We're gonna go with that one. She embedded the smaller traits into Andreas even when we and Karis were still on his side. When they amplify, it feels really natural and yet also horrifying. <laughs> this is the art of unlikable characters, maybe even the art of creating villains. They have to make sense. The more growth the readers see to explain how they get where they're going and explain their motives, the better. We totally understand where Andreas is coming from. He feels weak because of his disease and wants power to compensate for that. He's been coddled all his life and views his sister as a shield he deserves rather than a person who needs him too. He wants to be loved to make up for all these weaknesses. But we as readers still see him as completely evil when he acts that way. Or at least I did. We're not swayed to believe executing an innocent kid or betraying Karis on the word of your three-day lover you stole from your dead brother because you're a self-serving little weasel is okay just because you have a heart condition. Karis eventually kills Imogen because Imogen was about to kill her first, and Andreas goes total psycho vengeance seeker on his own sister, who is still actively and clearly trying to save his life and help him win the trials. Do we understand his motives? Yes. How many characters have lost loved ones and gone off the deep end? But we as readers are experiencing a little thing called dramatic irony, where we know something he doesn't, and that casts all his actions in a totally unjustifiable light. We can understand him and still despise him, which is fantastic when it comes to creating a page-turner. So if you're trying to write an unlikable character, and you're doing it from this angle where we as readers are witnessing their moral downfall... The key is to plant the traits that will be amplified and made evil early on in the story. No one is going to go evil in aspects they don't struggle with on a good day. 
A person uninterested in money isn't going to turn greedy. A chaste person isn't going to fall for lust. So cater their original personality to their impending villain traits. If your villain wants power, showcase a smaller instance of that in them from the beginning. If your villain wants love or respect, illustrate that in their relationships from the start. If your villain is greedy or vengeful or whatever, just plant those seeds early on. And then give them motives we all understand on a basic level, but then twist them with unreasonable expectations or unearned loyalties. Andreas's problem is that he took Imogen's word and loved Imogen over his own sister, who had spent her whole life protecting him. He has no reason to do this, aside from the fact that he's getting what he wants out of Imogen and he thinks his sister is a given nothing more to gain there. He never considers that she's doing it because she loves him instead of him just being entitled to that love. He treats her like a servant, even in the way he thinks about her at the beginning. So when he turns on her, we hate it and we're frustrated, but we also feel like we sort of saw it coming. He was never the type to choose family over a willing sexual partner. He never had a strong backbone. Even Max, who he was praised for saving, was really an act of kindness he did so he could ultimately benefit. His selfish nature is obvious from the start. It just doesn't become a problem until the opportunity presents itself. And every person has traits like that just swimming around in them waiting for the worst opportunity. Lean into those, amplify those, and that's how you're going to write a good, unlikable character. It's probably obvious by now that I hated Andreas. Imogen was also awful because I could see how she was manipulating things and I was so worried all the time that she was going to win. But Karis, oh, Karis, she was fantastic. She never gives up. There were so many times when I was like, this will finally be the moment she thinks about herself instead of her brother, right? But it never was. She kept fighting for him even when it was almost stupid to do so. But here is a thing I personally believe, that if you're going to do good deeds for people, sacrifice for them, or help them, it should be on true good intentions, on the understanding that they owe you nothing back for it. Helping someone doesn't owe you their loyalty or favor. I mean, as a good person in return, you should strive to be good to people who help you and appreciate them and be grateful and do what you can for them too, but that shouldn't be the motive of the original do-gooder. It shouldn't be a deal-breaker. You should do good things because they're good. Taking all the hits, including betrayal or embarrassment or heartache, on yourself for the sake of the person you're doing the good deed for. Otherwise, good deeds are just exercises in selfishness like Andreas's. <laughs> so even though I totally craved a moment where Karis just goes off on her brother and proves he was wrong and then refuses to forgive him as he wallows in misery on the floor next to the dead body of the love of his life... I really admire that she never actually did. <laughs> That's what makes her worth following and what would have made her a better ruler than him. She's clever, but she uses it for his sake rather than her own. And it's such an unfortunate paradox in life that, of course, people like that end up sacrificing for people who don't really deserve it. But she doesn't let the fact that she is actually the one who's been betrayed or the fear for her own life or anything like that hinder the fact that she loves her brother. It's a true priority, not just something she does while it's convenient or while he loves her back, and I have a lot of respect for that. I think that's what made her such a likable character. It's really what made her a strong character, and I think we should take a cue from this as writers when it comes to writing strong characters. She has all these flaws. I wouldn't even go so far as to say she's a good person, because she does prioritize Andreas above, like, the good of the kingdom, and that feels not awesome, but she does have a decently pure motive. 
Does she want Andreas to love her? Sure, but that's not a deal breaker. Does she appreciate the attentions of Eric, her sort of love interest when it comes? Yes, but it doesn't distract her. Does she take care of her brother in a way that maybe reveals itself to be a bit enabling and annoying? Yes, but there are others she cares for and sacrifices for too, and her motives are generally good. She's a mixed bag, one that ultimately weighs a little heavier on the side of likable and good. I also love how competent she is. Because this love is coming from a pure place rather than a selfish place, she is willing to take on embarrassing moments or hard moments and not be changed by them. When Andreas rejects her, it stings, but she's not brought down by it. She doesn't have to care what others think because she knows where she stands, and I think that's a fantastic trait in a main character. Too often, I think main characters will take risks and go out on limbs that will fail, and then they get all sheepish about it and regret it and backtrack because they're expecting other people to do right instead of just doing what they can. But Karis is so sure of her own heart that she doesn't have to feel that even when she fails. I would like to see this more in particularly young adult books because I think owning your choices is the best way to make sure they're the right ones, and that even if they're not, you can still stand up again after the failure. Karis is determined, and she inspires the loyalty of those who matter, and she doesn't let the false accusations change who she is the way Andreas lets power change him. She keeps owning what she thinks is right, and only adjusts when necessary, not when convenient. She doesn't use false accusations as an excuse to become the reality of the false accusations. So, very well done. Bravo. Now, my last point is about point of view. In the Ruthless Magic episode of Catherine's Corner, I mentioned that I don't tend to love dual points of view because of how they're normally done, but I will admit I loved how it was done in Dividing Eden. Karis and Andreas are obviously our two perspectives, and it works for several reasons. One, it is in third person, but it's such a close, limited third person that it feels a bit like first. I think that really helped. We got to be pretty deeply in the minds of the two characters, but their names were still popping up on the page enough for me to remember who they were. Two, they're siblings. This means there's no romantic attachment between them, and this is my biggest issue with most dual point-of-view books. Making the point of views about romance shifts the focus of the book off the main issue and onto the romance. You only want to do this if romance is, in fact, the point. But it's not here, and because the points of views are siblings, we're still getting connection and depth of relationship without the spiral of romance taking away from the plot. We're focused back onto their sibling relationship, which is the point. They're also not actually that often together, so their scenes are either wondering about the other or talking with someone else interesting or complimenting rather than repeating what the other just experienced. This ups the tension and gives a more complete picture of the story to the readers who are getting both viewpoints because both of those viewpoints are adding something essential to the story on both a plot and character level rather than just a character level. Three, we get to see the contrast in their characters. Like I said, Andreas' way of thinking is so subtly a red flag, it might not register for a while. He is written to be so convinced of things, like Imogen's trustworthiness or Karis's betrayal, things we can see to be untrue in both points of view, so he's almost like an unreliable narrator. 
We trust Karis because her perspective seems the most honest, the least self-centered, and because even in Andres' point of view, we see the gaps that he's missing. We see that Imogen is slimy and he's just not properly interpreting it. We see that he's being manipulated by the council members and putting his suspicions somewhere they don't need to be. That contrast really contributes to the tension, which leads to the dramatic irony. Dramatic irony is when readers know something the characters don't, and so readers are getting a more complete picture of the conflict and the driving motives than the characters are. We know before Karis does that Andreas is suspecting her of betrayal. We know that Andreas is wrong in assuming Karis wants the throne. We can see how Imogen is different around different people and how Eric is not. On and on, back and forth, we as readers are getting more information than either character on their own. They're not sharing with each other for most of the story, and this is what makes both points of view necessary and compelling. Also, because of this contrast, their voices are so different that I never forgot whose head I was in. Karis is typically focused on the big picture and the meaning of things. Andreas is typically zeroed in on the details and his own stake in the game. So it's easy to tell them apart through the writing, and I think Charbonneau nailed their individual voices for this to work. The fourth reason, and this is just a little thing for me, is that the chapters are perfectly alternating. Odd chapters are Karis's, even chapters are Andreas's, which means we spend an equal amount of time with each and have a predictable idea of whose head we're going to pop into next. I really like this level of consistency for organization reasons, makes it very easy to follow. For dual point of view, it's nice to not have chapters from the same perspective in a row, makes it feel like both characters are playing equal roles, and it feels so neat. I like it. All that, combined with the fact that Charbonneau really utilizes these dual perspectives instead of using them to indulge in a few more moments of romance or writing the same scene twice, really connects us as readers with both twins, and that made the dual point of view a strength rather than a setback. All in all, I really enjoyed the book. I mean, it made me furious, and I spent the entire time reading it anxious and on edge, but in a good way. In a way that means the writer did her job. So, good job. Charbonneau. With that, it's time to close out this episode. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you on the next page. 